science. Welcome to Love and Science. I'm Andrew Glester and it is wonderful to have your company here on BCFM 93.2 FM. This week we're going to be looking at computer games because I know a lot of you are stuck at home uh, like I am actually as well. Enjoying the company of our families and spending time with each other. And there has been, over the years, quite a lot of stuff written and said about computer games which might make you think that it would be a bad idea for you to turn on your old video game console and start playing games with the family. And I'm here to tell you that the science does not say that. We're going to hear from Dr P Tetchels, who's the author of Lost in a Good Game, the book which has been receiving rave reviews. He's a researcher in the long-term effects of computer games at Bath Spa University. And we'll hear from him as the show goes on. But I wanted to start the show with a piece by Rachel Collins, who's a student doing the MSc in Science Communication at UE Bristol. And... As part of her course and the Masters in Science Communication, Rachel produced a package which is right up this street. Here's Rachel's package on the effects of computer games. This is the time of vengeance, and no life is worth saving. It's time for me to kill, and it's time for me to die. Computer games have been accused over recent years of eliciting violent behaviour and being responsible for maladjusted individuals psychologically disconnected from the real world. And in 2018, gaming addiction was listed as a mental health disorder by the World Health Organization. For some, however, it seems this disconnection from the real world is a kind of therapy and their treatment for, not the cause of, their mental health problems. During his time at Eurogamer, video producer Johnny Kidoni made a YouTube series called Low Batteries, which examines how computer games can help us identify, understand and navigate mental health difficulties experienced by ourselves and others. I spoke to psychologist, video game researcher and science writer Dr Pete Etchells, who researches the behavioural effects of playing video games at Bath Spa University. Could you tell us a bit more about how gaming can positively impact mental health? A lot of people use video games as a sort of coping strategy. On the other hand, there are increasingly becoming more targeted games that are, are trying to specifically have an impact on certain types of mental health issue or certain types of trauma. A good example of this is a part of me. So it's aimed at kids who have lost a close family member like a parent. The aim of something like a part of me is to basically provide a, a safe environment for them to explore their emotions, to listen to other stories of kids and other people who've gone through similar sorts of issues and give them a space to try and process what's happened to them. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence to suggest that they really help with that, but the research evidence is in its infancy, so we don't really have a good, good handle on what are the best sorts of games in what sorts of situations yet. From the gameplay clips, some of them seem pretty harrowing or violent, which leads me to think, could they trigger or exacerbate some mental health problems? 
the, the honest answer is we don't know yet. There isn't that much research on it. What's been interesting over the past few years is that we have seen more and more video games start to tackle mental health issues in a much more nuanced and realistic way. A game was released called Hellblade that places you in the uh, in the footsteps of a Celtic warrior who suffers from psychosis. Forms of psychosis that look very similar to what people sometimes go through with schizophrenia. The games company worked directly with psychiatrists. And the aim there was to provide a very accurate and very sympathetic representation of what it is actually like to go through psychotic episodes. There was a question at the time, you know, if you're making this a realistic situation, if somebody who does suffer from psychosis plays this game, is it going to trigger a psychotic episode in them? As far as they're aware, that's not happened. What has happened is that people who do suffer from psychosis have, have got in touch to say thank you. It's been a wonderful way of allowing them to show friends and family what it's actually like. Obviously, temporary escapism can be therapeutic, but long-term denial is obviously not healthy. Johnny mentioned that playing your sad game can be a diagnostic tool. If gaming can be used as an escape from the real world, could the length of time you spend gaming act as a similar indicator of whether something's up with you and how do you recognize when you might be gaming too much the amount of time that we spend gaming is perhaps a little bit too simplistic a measure of trying to gauge whether something is awry somebody could spend 10 hours a day gaming and it not cause any problems at all somebody could spend an hour or two gaming and it would have a real impact on their lives what johnny talks about almost like a self-assessment. If you're able to do that, great. If you're able to reflect on whatever it is that you're doing and say, I think I'm doing this a little bit too much. That's a really important process to go through for somebody who deals with something like depression or anxiety, but not everybody necessarily does that. That's not a good or a bad thing. That's just there are differences amongst people who deal with these sorts of issues. If you are able to do that, then great. But I don't necessarily think it should be the case that we should go, well, therefore, we need to make sure that we don't spend too much time playing video games because there's no amount of time that is a good or a bad amount. It, it depends on a whole range of other complex factors as to whether this is a problem or not. I spoke to gamer Rachel Reynolds about gaming addiction and she raised an important point about the increasing connectedness of gaming and how being able to chat to a community of like-minded individuals can be an important support. Is it an addiction if it's really helping someone? You're actually getting out and talking to friends rather than just doing nothing. There's a whole online community of people who are there to support you. If that then so happens to be accompanied by playing a game with them. Is that really an addiction? That's the brilliant Rachel Collins, who is uh, one of the students on the Masters in Science Communication at UWE Bristol. I hope that we'll be having more of Rachel on the show as weeks go by. So as I say, we're going to be talking here on BCFM 93.2 FM about computer games and the effect that they have on us. We are speaking to Dr. Pete Etchells, the author of the book Lost in a Good Game. He's a researcher in the long-term effects of video games on people. He's a psychologist, a psychology uh, researcher, and since he spends his time researching the effects of video games... I thought that was quite fortunate, so I asked him how that happened. I was a researcher at Bristol a while ago. I did my PhD there, and I was doing research on um, evolutionary psychology stuff at the time. I was a postdoctoral research assistant in, in, a, in a lab there, 
uh, doing some cool stuff with motion capture, actually, which was good fun. And I've played video games all my life. So something came up in the news one day that was something along the lines of um, video games leave kids with dementia, warns top neurologist, which confused me a little bit because I was like, that doesn't sound... It doesn't sound right, really. It doesn't sound like there's any research behind that. Turns out there isn't. So mm. we'd always used to go down to the pub on a Friday evening after um, after work, and I got into a little bit of a rant about this particular um, newspaper article. And one of the professors in the department said, well, look, why don't you put your money where your mouth is? Do some actual research on it then, um, instead of just pontificating and telling me about it, Pete. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we did that. So we didn't have any grant money or anything but we used some data from the children of the 90s study which is an awesome study based in uh, in and around bristol um to look at some longitudinal links well to see whether there were any between playing violent video games at an early age and aggression later on just to try and tease apart some of these big issues so after kind of reading those newspaper articles kind of getting into the research literature you realize that it's it's very messy very quickly like there's a lot of people who've got very strong opinions both ways about whether games generally are good or bad for us so we wanted to try and do some maybe more objective research that sat somewhere in the middle video games cause dementia mm. in kids mm. right it it feels like video games haven't been around long enough for anyone to have got dementia the first console came out in 1972 right so they've been around nearly 50 years now that article was more about early onset dementia and, right. and there there was there is zero evidence for so that. how does that come about then how do we get a report in was it in the newspapers it was yes from a psychologist not quite okay. no a neuroscientist I, okay so what should we not trust what we read about science in the newspapers <laughs> not always no <laughs> Um, I think it's one of those classic cases of somebody who has a genuine concern about something that's happening in society that they don't really know too much about, who is an expert in a particular area of science, who then feels as though that expertise is transferable, basically. So they start talking about something else that's not in their area. They are believable because they're an eminent expert or professor. Um, but actually what they're saying isn't particularly evidence-based. Okay. And we see this sort of thing all the time. For example, Harvard professors says uh, it's aliens. Yeah, professors aren't perfect, right? They, no. Scientists are people and people make mistakes all the time, right? That's just part of being human. But sometimes we see scientists as these weird alien type people who are completely infallible. And maybe some of them are, I don't know. But you know, I think for the most part, we we fall into some of these traps that anybody else would in these sorts of situations where somebody asks our opinion on something that we don't necessarily know too much about, um, but we feel as though we're equipped in some way yeah. to talk about it, and then that that opinion is is given more weight than it should do. Pretty much as long as video games have been around, there's been the question of whether if you play violent games, do they have negative effects on you? And then there's been questions around, are they addictive? Do they cause things like social isolation and things like that. When we talk about the the, the quote-unquote bad of video games, it tends to be stuff like that. And when you see it in the news in particular, it tends to be pretty much one way or another. So it would be something like news study shows that video games are definitely bad for us in this particular way, or it would be 
the other way around, that video games are good for us in this particular way. And there's no kind of gray area, really. And I think that's where the actual effects of them are. So if you take the violent video games and aggression research, yeah, there's tons of research out there that shows that there is a, a link between one and the other. But that doesn't mean that it it's necessarily that good in terms of research. Mm-hmm. There's also loads of research that says that there's there's not much of a link. So what you've got to try and do in these situations is try and assess the quality of the evidence that's out there, really hard to do, mm-hmm. really hard to do, and see what the best studies say. So the best studies that we've got in that particular area seem to suggest that there is an association between playing violent games at an early age and being a bit more aggressive earlier on, but it's actually pretty weak. It's not anything to worry about, basically. There are other things that are going to cause you to become antisocial or develop conduct disorder. Those are things that we should be really worrying about. Video games, they're a small part of the puzzle, but not the thing that's the sole focus. Mm. And I think that's where sometimes the... um, the media narrative around video games gets lost because particularly when there are things in society that we're really struggling with. So it might be something like levels of depression or a school shooting in the U S or something like that. Things that we don't like and they're not good things, but we want to try and do something about. There's always a a need to try and simplify the situation a little bit and try and find you know, the culprit, as it were. And in all of those sorts of cases, it's never going to be the case that there's one thing mm. that is the, the sole causal fact, that if that thing hadn't have happened, then whatever it is we're talking about wouldn't exist or wouldn't have happened. It's ne- it's never that simple. But video games seem to fall into that, that role quite mm. a lot in that it was because this person played video games that they were driven to go and uh, commit mass murder or it's that because people play teenagers play video games that they become more depressed or anxious and again there's there's just the evidence doesn't bear that idea out really there mm-hmm. are there are links between playing video games and, and mental health but they're they're weak it's more about screen time generally i think with yeah. with mental health issues but again same sort of deal there really so that there are other things that we need to worry about when we think about teenage mental health why is it that we i say we they <laughs> draw this want to draw the, I mean you're psychology right so you know you know the answer to this why, why do they draw, want to draw like because it was there was a time when it was Twisted Sisters fault. so uh, the choice the parent has then is to uh, sit down and listen to every song on the album right or read the lyrics if they're on the record on what, if they're not on the uh, I mean I think there's pretty general agreement that if uh, the lyrics are printed that's one possible solution for this Let's suppose the lyrics aren't uh, printed. Then what choice does a parent have? To sit down and listen to every song on the album? Well, if they're really concerned about it, I think that they have to. Telephones, comic books. I mean, podcasts so far, we're okay, right? They will be the next moral panic, definitely. <laughs> Those damn kids sitting and listening to their, their <laughs> iTunes. <laughs> um, well, I think moral panics have been around at any time there's been a new form of either technology or a new thing that people like in culture that tends to come from more of a counterculture perspective, maybe, or it's 
something that older people, and I, I, I classify myself as this now, as a 35-plus-year-old in Douglas Adams' categorization system, um, <laughs> something comes in and it's it's the devil. Like You don't understand it, you don't get it, and it therefore must be bad. So I think video games aren't special in that way, mm. in that they're just the latest in a long line of things that we've been worried about that are going to have massively detrimental effects to us as a society that then don't. Mm. Um, interestingly, there's, so the, the people, the researchers who think that video games do cause aggression or violent games do cause aggression, um, and the, they're the same ones that show these links all the time, there are some out there that, that have published papers saying that, you know, of course all of these moral panics have been shown to be um, nothing to worry about, um, by the end of it, but video games are the they're the right one. They're the <laughs> yeah. one that we should be worrying about. Yeah. You can't possibly say that at this stage. No. You, know, you can only say those sorts of things with the benefit of hindsight. Um yeah, I could be completely wrong and it could be that actually video games are the thing that are going to destroy society. Yeah. And put money on them not be. No. Not being that. That's Brexit. No, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the world is on fire at the minute. I think it's going to be climate change that kills us all, not video games. Yeah. But, you know, I don't think that, that means that we should give them a free pass and say, well, look, you know, let's ignore them, they're fine. Yeah. I think there are interesting questions we can ask about video game effects Yeah. that we don't need to start couching in this all good, all bad sort of framework. And that if you do say that video games are not particularly good for us in this way, you're not attacking people or you're not saying that therefore they should all be banned or things like that but you're yeah. just trying to figure out what the best thing is for everybody who plays them mm. okay i tell you what i've just realized of course that books had their time when they were the, <laughs> the work of the devil didn't they uh yours isn't uh <laughs> thank you very much i learned an awful lot about psychology from good. your book that's good from a reader in science communications <laughs> book. Well done. I don't think it's the book that people think it's going to be. I was talking to Adam Rosser at Radio 5 um, the other day about it, and he was saying that... Uh, so Steve McNeil's got a book out about the history of video games at the minute, and he was saying that his book is more technical than he thought it was going to be, and my book is more story-based and narrative, which I took to mean interesting uh, <laughs> yeah. than he thought it was going to be which is a very kind way of him, of him saying it but i think yeah so there's there's, a, there's an entire chapter in there that's got nothing to do with video games it's about psychology um because there are a lot of problems with the psychological research in video games that speak to wider problems in psychology at the minute and it was it was always a bit of a a, a pet wish that i could get that in there and I, I didn't have to fight with my editor that much actually for, to convince him that this was worthwhile um, doing, but I'm really glad that I did because I quite yeah. like that chapter. Oh, I love that chapter. I, I have to admit, I was just about to ask you about that chapter <laughs> because um, it kind of starts with um, the notion that psychology is in a bit of a mess, mm -hmm. which is uh, kind of terrifying from a science communication point of view. <laughs> I was like, what? You can't say that. People are just going to throw everything out the window. But you dealt with it beautifully. Um, but also, when I came to the end of the chapter before, and you said you were going to take a hiatus. I was like, no, I don't want to do that. I want to carry on with the video games. But it's testament to what a good chapter it is that I let you off 
Thank you. And, yes, um, I'm, but, I'm glad I was off the hook. Yeah, can you imagine if I didn't let you yeah. on, be here, I guess? But yeah. <laughs> I was talking to Robin Ince the other day and he was oh. like, I really hated this chapter. I did. <laughs> yeah. It was, he didn't like the second chapter on, on the history of video games. Oh. Um, and then and then I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Um, and then he felt bad, so he kind of backtracked a little bit. Well, so. I don't know. If Robin Ince doesn't like it, that's not a bad thing because he used to have a, a, a show called Bad Book Society or Bad, bad Book Club where yeah. he'd read from bad books. So he might read from you. Hopefully, yeah, that'd be amazing. <laughs> that'd be great. No, it was all fine. It was all yeah, good. Yeah. No. So um, I did, maybe can you just tell us a bit about the mess that psychology's in? Yeah. Do you know what? It's one of those things that I think if you if you get the the right, the quote-unquote, the right sort of psychologist on, that they will vehemently say that actually there's not been any problems. So it's quite a heated debate, actually. But it all started around about eight years ago, I think. Um, and a few things happened around about the same time that basically meant that psychologists started feeling like they needed to take stock of what it was that we were doing and whether we were doing it in the right way. So one thing was that a paper got published by a, a psychologist called Daryl Ben, um, which claimed that there was that they found evidence for precognition and psychic ability, basically. So I'll try and explain this as quickly as I can because I get confused about it myself. Ghostbusters. So, Ghostbusters. <laughs> That's that, right? Basically, yeah. There's been a lot of research on this sort of stuff that's been a bit hokey-pokey. But BEM's research used good, standard, well-known research methods in memory research. So he gave people a list of 40 words to just look through to begin with, and then immediately afterwards gave them a list of words, say, did you just see this in the list? And you say yes or no. Um, and then did something for a bit of break. At a later point, say 20 minutes down the line, a computer program would randomly select 20 of the words that they saw from the original 40 list and show them to those participants. And basically what they found was that people were more likely to say that they recognised the word just after they'd seen the list at the start. If that word then appeared in the randomly generated list 20 minutes in the future. So it kind of seemed as though cause preceded. Yeah. No, effect preceded cause. Yeah. Cause preceded effect <laughs> is the right way around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that happens all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, this was a real problem because it seemed like a, a fine study. You know, there's there's nothing particularly dodgy about it. It was published in a well-respected journal and things like that. The problem that the psychologists found themselves with that particular study was that Either this study is correct, in which case we've got clear evidence for psychic ability and that calls into question quite a lot of science. Yeah, and upsets James Randi a lot. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Vindicate Yuri Geller. Um, or the way that we do psychological research is so fundamentally screwed up that this can happen. Yeah. Um, and it seems to be the case that it's the latter of those. So few groups tried to replicate the findings afterwards, couldn't couldn't find the same effect, but also couldn't get those papers published in the same journal. So the journal said, no, this isn't novel. Um, it's not interesting on you. You're just doing something that somebody did before, but you found a null result, a negative result, mm. i.e. you didn't find an effect. So that was the kind of start of this realisation that... A lot of psychological research that's published tends to be either novel or positive. 
So we tend to be more likely to publish research that shows that X does cause Y than X doesn't have any effect on Y, which means that we've got this thing called a publication bias. So there's a massive, what's known as a file drawer effect. So studies that are well conducted, but don't show any effects, less likely to get published. So just end up in the file drawer gathering dust. Mm. So, you know, it might be the case that 2000 studies have been done on precognition and 1999 of them have actually shown that precognition doesn't exist, but they've not been published because it's not interesting to say that, right? But the one that does show it exists, either due to random statistical noise or whatever, that's the one that gets published. So in the scientific research literature, we've got one paper that says definitely a thing, but the reality of the situation is that it's not. No single study in isolation is ever going to tell you anything conclusively about anything in any area of science, mm. um, not least psychology. So you need you need a, a wealth of it. You need years and years of incremental research, replications confirming them, um, and we don't have that for precognition. Yeah. So it don't exist. The other thing that happened around about the same time, which was completely unconnected, but I don't think helped this existential crisis that was going on was that there was a guy called Diedrich Starpel, who was a very eminent social psychologist in uh, the Netherlands, who was found to have been fabricating data, making up studies for about 10, 15 years or so. This became a very big story in the world of psychology in that there were lots of inquiries, and I think he had something like 58 papers or something like that retracted, and astonishing, PhD yeah. students, were their, their theses were called into question because apparently we think the sorts of things that would happen would be things like, you know, a student would go in and say, I've got this idea for a study, and he'd go, actually, that's a really good idea. Do you know what? I think I collected some data on that a few years ago. Yeah. Come back in a week, and I'll see if I can dig it out. And he, he'd fabricate the data, and then when the student came back a week later, um, they'd analyse it together and find this amazing effect. Um, I think when people did say, actually, can I can I collect the data myself or can I look at the raw data, that they get shouted down and, uh, and closed down. So, you know, a, a lot of people's PhD theses were called into question at the end of it, which, you know, it's entirely not their fault. People were kind of caught up in the headlights of being um, supervised by this superstar researcher, and yeah. um, it just left this wake of devastation. I think. So, I what's think, he doing now? I don't know what he's doing now. There was there was a really funny coda to the entire story, in that he he ended up getting a teaching job somewhere. So he lost his job. He had his PhD um, retracted. Um, whatever the word for losing your PhD is. Um, he, I think he managed to avoid a criminal sentence um, just about. Um, so he became a teaching associate and there were lots of stories uh, and articles about him on a blog called Retraction Watch at the time. And this account started popping up saying that actually he was fine and he was a really nice guy and trying to defend him. And it turned out it was him. <laughs> so he got in trouble again for that. And I think he lost his, his new job as a result of, of yeah. this. So I don't, I don't know what he's doing at the minute. No, having a cup of tea with Andrew Wakefield. <laughs> 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 Sorry. Um, I did. I, will I put that in? Who knows? Um, <laughs> I think he is quite litigious, actually. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't say I didn't like Andrew Wakefield, did I? So no. I didn't say that he was a charlatan in any way. So, no, not at all. So that's fine, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't like Andrew Wakefield. That helps. <laughs> so, yeah, okay, that's fine. I, you see, I didn't say that. Uh, why don't you like Andrew Wakefield? <laughs> oh, yeah, because he ruined science communication. For about what twenty five years now, 
Mm. And, and also people's health. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which, as a psychologist, yeah, you've got the answer to this as well. <laughs> Why? How do you get interested in science to the point that they are, and then start making stuff up? So, Starple wrote a book about this, and there's some really interesting insights there that I think answer that question, which is. I don't think anybody starts off going from being a perfectly good and honourable scientist to overnight fabricating data or making up papers or doing anything dodgy. I think it's a slippery slope. And I think part of it is the pressure that the, the academic system puts on scientists. So, you know, this idea that, certainly in psychology at least, that you're more likely to get a paper published if it shows an effect rather than no effect, puts pressure on you to try and create studies that show effects. And you need papers in order to get grants. You need grants in order to maintain your job. And it's all a big, vicious cycle, basically. Yeah. So I think what happens is, you know, you, you run a study, say, and the, you're, you're convinced based off whatever research you've done before, that this thing should affect that thing. Yeah. And it doesn't. You know, you do the stats and it shows a null effect. There's a little there's quite a lot of flexibility in the way that we do stats in psychology, which is another one of the problems. So you might go, oh, I did the wrong analysis. So analyze it again, see what happens. And if you do that like 20 times, say, because you keep thinking as though you're doing the wrong thing, you might just randomly show find a find a positive finding just due to false positive, you know, random statistical noise in the way that we do the analysis. And then you go, ah, that's what I thought we were going to find. Mm. That's the analysis that I should have done. Mm. But then the problem is, what you do is when you write up the paper, you only report that you did one analysis. Mm. So it's little things like that, what are called questionable research practices. Things like, say you run a study and you, you collect data from 20 participants and you're super excited about your study. So... When you collect data from 20 participants, you stop at that point and just look at the data, analyze it, just see what happens. And you don't find an effect yet. And so you go, oh, well, it's okay. I was going to test 100 people anyway. Yeah. So then you run another th 10 participants. So you're up to 30, analyze the data again because you're really excited. Nothing. That's fine because I was going to go up to 100. So you get to 50 participants, you analyze the data and you find an effect. Similar sort of thing in that you keep running the analysis. So it yeah. might be a, a just a random finding that you've got. But what you're doing is you, you sort of shifting the goalpost because you, you, you're, you're analysing data until you find the thing that you want rather than having a really strong reason as to why you would test 100 people in the first place and sticking to that. So it might be the case that you test 100 people, which is, say, the right quote-unquote amount of people to test, and there's no effect. Yeah. But because you've been messing around with the data, you've found an effect where there really technically isn't one. So lots of little things like that, I think, can happen sometimes. I think psychologists traditionally have been encouraged to um, get a feel for their data and, and have a poke around with it when they when they actually get it. And I think that if you if you don't realise what the potential problems with that are, can lead to these sorts of little things happening. And then if what happens is off the back of doing stuff like that, you keep getting papers published, then there's a pressure to keep getting papers published afterwards. You, know, you yeah. feel as though you should be doing this. Yeah. And I think that's where the the slippery slope starts to kick in. 
My concern is that for you and me and many of the listeners to The Cosmic Shed, we have a sense of where we go to check whether a particular new paper that's come out, or you get, you kind of, if you get to know a field, you, mm. you get the sense that, you know, if they've found that like, neutrinos are travelling faster than the speed of light, mm. then there's probably a mistake somewhere. You Maybe of, there's something wrong with the neutrinos. Maybe they're mutating. Yeah, that sort of thing. There's something wrong with that film. Let's not talk about it. <laughs> um, and, but for a lot of people who aren't kind of necessarily that scientifically minded, mm. um, what, how do you know what's right and what's wrong? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. And I think if I did know the answer to that, I would be very rich. <laughs> um, it, it's it's really hard. It's really hard. I think even even in your own research area, if you just move slightly out of it, it can be such a huge area with so many published studies and so many little things going on that you don't necessarily know about with people, you know, what constitutes a good researcher or not so good researcher in that area, that it becomes very difficult very quickly to assess something on the on the basis of a newspaper article that you read about it or even reading the paper behind the news article if you do that it, it's really hard and i think it's doubly hard because it's something that i've noticed with video games it's really hard to check your own biases at the door so i've noticed a lot recently that there have been um, a lot of good studies coming out about video games and screen time that these ones that are showing that they're that their effects are not not as strong as we maybe thought they were a couple of years ago. I think that they're good studies because they're open, they're they're pre-registered, so people say what methods they're going to do and what analyses they're going to conduct before they actually collect the data. All the data are open, so anybody can interrogate it if they want to. So those sorts of things kind of keep people a, a little yeah. bit more honest. But I've noticed that with some of those big studies that have come out recently, that the, the authors have been really good at communicating their research on Twitter and the sorts of questions that they get immediately will be things like, yeah, but who funded this? And I think that's a really important thing to do. It's really good to be critical of, of research that's out there, but I don't see those same people saying that or asking those questions about the research that shows that screen time does have a link with depression, say, or something yeah. like that. So I think if you've got a preconceived notion that screens are bad for us, yeah. it'd be really critical of the stuff that says it's not that bad and give the stuff that says it is bad a bit of a free pass. Yeah. And I think that goes both ways, you know, and I think it's really, you know, it's really hard to think about what you fundamentally believe about something and just not give it a free pass as soon as you read something that confirms that, but to try and take a step back and think, now, hang on a second, is this actually a good study or not? Yeah. That that doesn't happen anywhere near enough, and it's really it's really hard to try and get that across to people. That is what I would do if I wanted to know whether a psychology study was good. Was I'd tweet at you and ask you what you thought. <laughs> so anybody, but I think that's that's a really good point. Actually, I think that is a good thing. That you know, I know that a lot of people say that you know Twitter's a hellscape and it's just where, where conversations go to die. Mm. But actually what I found is that if you can build up a network of scientists that you know will engage with you, then you can do stuff like that. You can go, well, you know, I know, I know nothing about this, but I think that person's pretty respectable in this area. What do they think about it? And they might have already tweeted about it or something yeah. like that. But, you know, I think that's how we should be using those sorts of networks to, to leverage expertise a little bit more. Yeah. 
Wise words there from Dr. Pete Etchells, the reader in psychology at Bath Spa University who researches the long-term effects of computer games. I hope that has put your mind at rest and you'll be able to pick up your games console, plug it in and spend some time with the family playing some computer games as we all find ourselves stuck at home with those that we love the most. Now, you've been listening to me, Andrew Blester, on Love and Science, BCFM 93.2. Love and Science.